Welcome to My Talk, the podcast series brought to you by ISS Market Intelligence. If you're interested in what's happening in the global retail financial services marketplace, asset wealth management, insurance banking, fintech, you name it, you have come to the right place. Count on My Talk each month to keep you up to date on industry headlines and peek under the hood of those headlines with the help of industry experts. If you enjoy this episode of My Talk, subscribe to our podcast on your preferred podcast platform for monthly episodes featuring talks with thought leaders in the world of asset and wealth management. My name is Goshka Folda. I'm your host and the Global Head of Research at ISS Market Intelligence. Today's episode will continue our recent exploration of topics in the intermediated advice arena around the world. But since today is our seventh episode, I thought we might be experiencing the seventh episode itch. So let's shake things up a bit. I have asked my colleague, Ashley Wood, to do the honors and run our guest interview today. Ashley, who is a managing director at ISS Market Intelligence, oversees the product engagement specialist group in addition to managing client relationships in the Northeastern states. Um, since joining the firm, Ashley has worked with senior leadership at asset managers of all sizes using market intelligences, proprietary data and services, and helping firms shape their distribution strategy. Fun fact about Ashley, uh, she was a member of the women ice hockey team at her alma mater, Williams College, so she's a tough cookie. I can testify to that. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you, Ashley. And Ashley has secured um, a highly esteemed, a great guest for this episode. We're honored to be joined by Jeff Duckworth, who is president of U.S. Intermediary Distribution and John Hancock Investment Management, which is a division of Manulife. And it is one of the world's largest asset managers to employ a multi-manager approach. Jeff offer, oversees a very large portfolio, the distribution of John Hancock Investment Management's mutual funds, ETFs, separately managed accounts, Freedom 529 Education Savings Plan, um, private investments, and covers a wide range of cha channels, including warehouse firms, independent broker dealers, RAs, and bank trusts. So very, very broad um, portfolio. He has um, over 30 years of industry experience, and um, he is a graduate of Clemson University. He holds a number of uh, important securities and retirement planning designations, and also is the chairman of the very important and powerful ICI's Sales and Marketing Committee. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks. Great to be here. Ashley, and now I just get to sit back and enjoy the episode and the floor is yours. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so we have a stacked agenda for today. We're going to get through as, as much as we can with uh, with Jeff's valuable expertise. Um, I'd love to start the discussion just around, you know, the ever present topic of advisor engagement. We are now, you know, two plus years into a, a post-COVID or ongoing COVID environment. Uh, but really in the last three to four to six months, give or take, and our data corroborates this as well. Um, we've seen most restrictions lifted. We've seen as much of a, a return to the norm, so to speak, as you could see since 2020. Um, so Jeff, one of the first questions I have for you is if you can just speak about, are you seeing the same? Has the return to the in-person engagements returned to you know business as usual? Is it at the level um, that you would expect or, or any significant changes on that front in terms of advisor propensity to engage in person? 
Yeah, first of all, Ashley, thanks for having me. And and to uh, to, to get to your question, I, I would say that um, it, it has definitely picked up tremendously. Uh, I would not say that we're back to 2019 standards, pre-COVID standards, but but the reality is I, I, I don't know that we'll ever go back to exactly the way it was back in that day. As I think about the, the year that's unfolded here, you know, we, we went into the year as we were starting to get back in advisor offices where there was predominantly, I would say, more events than there were a ton of one-on-one -on -one meetings because advisors coming out of COVID really wanted to get back together as, as groups, share ideas, see people in the industry that they hadn't seen in a long time and so forth. And that's really how things started. And that part of this really hasn't changed much. Um, events continue to be very popular. Um, getting groups of financial advisors together for idea sharing purposes and so forth. So that's been a big part of our activity, I would say, actually here over the last six months or so. Um, but we, of course, we're doing a, a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings and a lot of small group meetings as well. But I don't think it will ever get back to where a traditional external wholesaler always feels like you have to be face-to-face -face with a financial advisor to drive every sale. And if you think back pre-COVID, pre that's the way I think we all felt is face-to-face -face meetings were the only way to go. Um, one thing that has not changed and I don't think will ever change is that this is the people business and getting in front of financial advisors face-to-face -face is a critical part of, of, of uh, making those engagements and keeping those engagements strong. But those can be augmented by continuing to use virtual meetings. Um, so I think, I guess the way I would look at it, and I'll summarize it in this way and let you come back with any questions you may have out of this, but I would summarize it as the, I think the in-person activities, the relationship building will never change. That's what I think gives you the right to uh, further that financial advisor relationship, which in many cases will be done virtually um, and, 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 and augment what you're doing face-to-face. -face. And, and quite frankly, what I'm finding, I think from talking to our wholesalers is the uh, in-person engagement is great for that relationship building, but more business is actually done when you follow up from that and do those virtually. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, I suppose on the comment of, of virtual meetings, which of course is, is sort of standard lingo these days as everything has shifted, can you talk a little bit about, um, this sort of bleeds into this topic of, of what tactical shifts have you made maybe at, maybe at the onset of COVID, but, but shifts that have been more persistent in the sense that, you know, you and the team will continue to, uh, to adapt in that way and apply some of those shifts going forward. So some of the things that that I hear about and that we see in our data, of course, are around this concept of of continued advisor segmentation, who targeting which types of advisors are more prone to which types of touch points. Right. So to your point earlier, who do we need to get in front of in person versus maybe who's more prone to a, a digital or, or virtual forward type of engagement? Um, can you talk a little bit about just some of the work maybe that you and the team are doing on that front and, and more broadly, just any sort of tactical changes you've made to be effective in COVID that um, that you see sticking around for the future? Sure. The uh, the good news in our case is we you know we, we kind of entered what I would call the data, uh, data analytics uh, part of the digital world probably 10 years ago. And it, and it has been a journey. And by the way, we'll continue to be a journey. Um, you know, we were we're much better today than we were five years ago at using that data uh, to I think, drive our success. And I think five years from today, we'll be better than we are today. So I think that will continue to evolve. Um, I think COVID certainly probably sped up this process for a lot of companies, us included, uh, to just simply make us better at it. Uh, there's no doubt we use data to get what I feel like to, to get in front of the right advisors. 
with the right material. And I think that's a real key here. And it, and it goes back to, I think, maybe something that you're alluding to a moment ago. And, you know, different advisors want to do business different ways, and, and which means they want to engage with wholesalers in different ways. Some advisors may want to see you still six or seven times a year. And that's great if they do, then we need to make sure that we do that. Other advisors might only want to see you one or two times a year. And again, we if that's what they want, we need to make sure that we're doing that as well. So I think, you know, incorporating some customization into the data that we have is not just knowing who to go see, but rather seeing them in the way that that is on their terms, uh, bringing them the materials that they need, uh, customizing the conversation, customizing the conversations around uh, their wants and desires of their practice and their their clients that they have and so forth. So that to me is kind of that, I would say the, that next phase of the digital evolution is how do we truly get this down to the customization of individual advisors when you have 300,000 financial advisors in the U.S. And I think that's the big takeaway is how do we how do we get to there next? Um, we're not there today. Uh, I don't know that any company is, uh, but I do think that that's ultimately where this is going. Yep. And in terms of you made a number of and I think that's that's dead on with sort of the right level of engagement, but with the right content at the right time that matters to that individual advisor. So that's I mean, as you and I have talked about and as our, our data suggests as well, when we interview advisors, one of the most important pieces to them is always this level of personalization and the tailored approach. Um, so you could have the best content in the world, theoretically, but if it has nothing to do with with the ticket that I'm dropping with John Hancock Investment Management, it's perhaps less relevant for me. Um, so on that topic, you know, what's your take on the type of content that's resonating most? Of course, the, the tailorization element is is ever present, but what types of content have you seen resonate most with with advisors? Have you seen material shifts on this front, um, particularly as we think about a year like like 2022? Yeah, I would say we actually started to sh- see a shift during COVID and, and then a further shift probably coming out of COVID here. Uh, and I don't know that necessarily know this COVID related. I think it's probably that part of this that might be more coincidental. But during COVID, uh, there's no question that our, our value add topics, practice management, um, uh, CE classes and different things that we, we could do to basically, uh, quite frankly, to get advisor time. Because uh, it wasn't about calling up and talking about your hot fund. I mean, that, that was simply not going to work. And we recognized that very early on in the early COVID days. Now, specific to 2022, um, because of not because we've come out of COVID, but because we came out of COVID and then we entered a very volatile market, I would say 2022 is has been a bit of a shift. Um, and then I think anything capital markets related is certainly more important today than it might have been 12 months, uh, 12 months ago. Um, you know, you get in a volatile market like we're in today. Uh, financial advisors are looking for guidance. They're looking for help. They're looking for better ways to connect with their with their clients. Um, and, and so I think that's the role that we're playing, uh, very heavily right now. We're, we're still, still doing a lot of value add practice management type, um, things as, with them as well. But capital markets is leading the conversation in almost every meeting that we have is they're, they're just starving for information and some piece of good news that they can provide to their clients. And so that's really where we're finding a lot of our, our time being spent. Uh, because what you cannot do again, a, the reality is, we have great products. Our competitors have great products. Um, and that's not necessarily what financial advisors want to hear about is your lead. Um, if you help them with their practice, they in return will find places to use your products if you have good products. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's an important point. And to your point, that's evolved quite a bit in the last several years. Um, just just on this, this last note on this topic, I suppose, is a bit more open-ended. But from your shoes, I mean, I often get asked about 
alignment and collaboration between sales and marketing and how that impacts some of the very initiatives that that you're laying out here. Um, any, I don't know, nuggets, silver bullet solutions, uh, advice for, for others that might be listening in just around best practices on, I think, what is a constant challenge, right, which is which is coordination between sales and marketing. Yeah, in fact, uh, it's a great question. Um, before I talk about that, I, I'm going to add one thing on to what I just said a moment ago, and that is uh, that for a wholesaler to be successful in the field, they have to take a consultative approach. Um, again, it goes back to the comments I made about the capital markets and so forth. You, you have to bring a consultative approach to the business. And I think that probably goes back to one of the things that you were just asking, that is the alignment between sales and marketing. Because if, if we don't have that alignment, um, I don't think that the, the wholesaler in the field can really go out with the proper messaging to truly help that financial advisor, to truly be a consultant to that financial advisors. And I've always said um, uh, the definition of distribution, you know, you look at my title, I'm, I'm head of U.S. distribution, but that doesn't really mean anything. To me, distribution is the combination of three things. It's sales, marketing, and product, fully aligned, rowing the boat in the same direction. That to me is when you have the, the proper distribution structure to go out and excel and ultimately take market share. Uh, if you don't have that alignment, it won't happen. Um, and I think your your wholesalers will eventually be affected by that in a negative way if you don't have that alignment. So as far as uh, tricks, I, I think it comes down to culture. Uh, you have to have leaders in each, each one of those three uh, that, that, that truly want to partner with each other, truly want to see the co- company excel. And it's about the bigger uh, entity as opposed to the individual. And we're fortunate we do have that kind of culture. And, and if you if you were to talk to my counterparts and marketing and my counterparts and product, I think you, they would say the same thing. That's what makes it all work is you got to have leaders in each of those three areas that truly want to work together for the betterment of the organization. Thank you for that. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, distribution structure, also an ever-changing topic. There's lots of you know, various forms of headcount in place, data segmentation in place. We track a lot of this in our competitor benchmarking research, as you know, and and it's becoming increasingly difficult to uniformly categorize everything that everybody is doing. Um, One of the one of the big topics, of course, more recently is around uh, hybrids in particular, which, again, mean very different things to to different firms in terms of structure, setup and deployment. Um, One of the I think the big questions here that's still yet to be proved in some cases is is around the ROI of these teams and, and how effective they are. Certainly there's a cost benefit there, uh, but uh, sort of the, the cost versus ROI decision is, is an ongoing one for, for sales leaders. Um, I know that you at, at John Hancock Investment Management have somewhat recently deployed a hybrid team. So maybe can you talk a little bit about the structure you're using, how you're tracking progress and, and success um, and what are some of the maybe continued challenges with this type of uh, a headcount structure? Absolutely. And and uh, you mentioned the word change. Uh, one of the things I picked up, actually, on the recent survey you did of, of, of uh, wholesalers in the industry is that change is ever evident. It, it can't, you know, there's comments in the survey results I saw of our own wholesalers. Um, and, it, and it's funny because I don't know that it's necessarily the company that's changing as much as the industry is in constant change. And your topic here is just a great example of that. Um, but the, first, I, I want to make sure that the audience knows the, the different definitions of hybrid. So I'm going to quickly define what I mean by hybrid, because uh, there's there's really two approaches to it. One is a traditional hybrid, which I think is what you're asking about here, where you have an individual that's probably working in the home office, 
not necessarily in a specific territory. Um, most of their work is done via uh, digital means, um, reaching out uh, uh, virtually, occasionally going in face to face, but they're not a traditional face to face wholesaler that's in offices every single day, as opposed to the hybrid approach, which I think is came out of that, that, I, that I would say came out of COVID, which is, hey, I'm a traditional external wholesaler, and I've incorporated as part of my my daily business some virtual aspects. So, to your question about the traditional hybrid. We did launch a hybrid desk. Uh, it's relatively small relative to our our uh, wholesalers in the field. For instance, we have uh, 60 external wholesalers and five hybrids. So, give you a, a, a you know feeling about the ratio there. And uh, of the five hybrids, the way we we employed them was uh, they are predominantly calling on a, a couple of broker dealers that we found through our analytics were not getting enough attention. Uh, they're good broker dealers. Our upside potential was very strong. Uh, but quite frankly, we were not giving them the service or the time needed to grow their business. So that kind of comes back to ROI. Um, while a, a typical hybrid territory is not going to drive as many sales uh, historically as a traditional external uh, territory, uh, the way I look at it is, hey, we're driving sales in two firms that we would not be driving sales in otherwise. The numbers speak for themselves. If you look at the, um, the last two years, uh, roughly two and a half years ago is when we launched our hybrid desk. Um, uh, they have had, they've actually been the fastest growing unit, uh, granted off of a smaller base. Um, so it's hard for me pro to project at this point in our uh, evolution, actually, what the ROI is going to be, say, two or three years from now. What I can say is it's, it is, it's growing a business from advisors that I do not believe we'd be growing the business with otherwise. So I look at it as new business to the firm that we had never would have seen without it. Um, and I guess my feeling is if they can get a territory where they're doing, 100 to 150 million, the ROI on that would be quite good, uh, you know, relative to an external territory that might be driving 400, 500, 600 million, uh, just because the economics are different in the way you pay a hybrid, the lack of T&E, and so forth and so on. And again, if it's truly additive business that we would not be getting otherwise, that to me affects the ROI in a positive manner. And And to that point, and this is perhaps more of a mixed bag among among firms who have deployed this type of headcount. Uh, anything you'd share just around sort of sourcing talent for that position? Is this a relatively tenured resource? Is this a progression from the internal desk type of a role? How, how do you think about that as you think about um, career progression and, and how the hybrid role might fit as part of that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm, and I'm not sure that there's a perfect answer here. Um, I would say in our case, we every one of our hybrids, we have promoted off of the internal desk. Um, and I would say the the hybrids that we promoted are looking for one of two things. And that this is probably where the difference is. One is, you know what, I, I, I love this business. I love helping financial advisors, but I don't necessarily want to just pick up a territory in, in some random state that I've never lived in, don't want to necessarily live in, that's not going to be for me. So I'm not willing to be a traditional wholesaler, but here's a path that will challenge me, uh, allow me to make more money than I'm making on the desk today and, and grow my career in other ways. And I'm happy with that. Uh, another avenue could be someone who says, I, I'm, I'm ready to go externally, but maybe we don't have a territory available today. Here's a way for them to really get some great skill sets that would make them a better external wholesaler when that day comes when we have a territory available and so forth. So We've actually seen two different paths that people are taking here, and, and quite frankly, we're, we're okay with either one of them. Yep. Yeah, that's a big topic, and we'll get to a little bit around retention towards towards the end of the podcast here. 
Um, before we switch gears and talk about that, you know, one other, I think, sort of load, relatively loaded distribution structure topic is around the RAA channel. Uh, there's a huge amount of focus in that space from, from virtually all of, you know, you and your U.S. counterparts, a lot of rep movement, very different playbook in the mix, just in terms of how an RAA advisor might engage, for example, relative to, you know, a traditional maybe wirehouse or, or independent channel advisor. Um, I know that, you know, you and the team have have put dedicated headcount against this channel. Many others have as well. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about really kind of what it takes to win in the RAA channel? Again, just given some of the differences in, in product mix and, and behavior, frankly, um, that we see playing out in this space relative to others. Sure. You know, it's it's funny. If, if you, again, if you go back to pre-COVID, uh, I think the model that most of us have for the RIA channel is more or less the model I think we're using for most of our wholesalers in the field today. And that is this, this I, I, I hate to use the word hybrid again, but this hybrid approach of, of um, a certain amount of your time face-to-face with financial advisors and a certain amount of your time being more virtual or over the phone. Uh, if you go back in time, that's what the RIA channel has always done. Um, you know, most companies are like ours. Where in our case, we have six dedicated uh, external RIA wholesalers, um, and most firms are, you know, with similar numbers. There's no way you can cover the full country with only, you know, five or six people if you feel if you're if you're trying to do all that in person. So, you know, the the hybrid approach for this group is critically important, and this group is critically important. And we we all know it's the fastest growing in the industry. We all know that there's a lot of advisors that have left warehouses and independent firms to go uh, with the RIA approach. So it's certainly a market you cannot ignore. Um, in many cases, they're some of the largest um, advisors and teams in the industry with the largest amount of assets. So you do have to take a different approach. Uh, you you, uh, you have to very, I think, take a very strategic approach. You have to truly understand their firms extremely well uh, to to excel in this marketplace. And the the, the customization approach that you and I spoke about a little bit earlier. We we're talking about making sure that you really only talk about things that, that will impact that firm, that RA firm uh, the most is your only prayer of surviving in this marketplace. Uh, you can't just go in and, and take a shotgun approach. It has not, and not even a rifle approach. It's, it's more of a laser approach to, to access this group, to, to bring them the products and the services that they truly need that will help their practice. Um, it will continue to be a, a large growth in the market. You know, the, a lot of the, the, the uh, press was saying, if you go four or five years ago, that this that they're going to take over the world. Um, I don't think RAs are going to take over the world. Uh, there's still a need for our, there's a, there's a great need for RAs, but there was also a great need for the independent firms, the regional firms, and the warehouse firms. So they're all going to coexist. But this is the fastest growing and will continue to be for a long time, I think. Yep, absolutely. And just a quick follow-up on that is, um, can you talk a little bit about how you think of segmentation in terms of where you where the team spends the majority of the focus is this purely based on assets or are there other uh, factors that you're considering there yeah we definitely look at that you're talking about is like dividing what what the what the pure ra wholesalers would get as opposed to uh, maybe uh and an, one of our other wholesalers that maybe has some rx ra exposure if, if, if that's what you're getting at exactly. yeah uh, yep. we we're dividing it up by various obviously geographies are going to be a driver um assets is a big driver um, whether they're pure RIAs or a hybrid RIA, which means they still are, you know, still affiliated with a broker dealer, but also is an, R, an RIA as well. Traditionally, those will stay with the regular uh, the traditional wholesalers, and the pure RIAs with the largest amount of assets 
tends to go towards our, our pure RIA sales team. Uh, but 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 we also do factor in relationships. Um, as I mentioned early on, this is still a relationship business, and we do our best not to dis- to disrupt too many relationships. And if there's a relationship where there's a lot of business that's been done with any segment of our business in the past, and that that particular advisor or that team moves somewhere else, uh, we many many times will keep those relationships in place because we think it's a, a disruption to that team or that group of advisors uh, otherwise. So we try to be smart about it, but. But the way we more or less draw the lines is at AUM levels. Um, so one one final topic, just being conscious of time, and and we'll maybe sort of end on this topic is is around wholesaler retention. So this has always been super important, but you know garnered more and more focus in 2022. You might argue just with everything going on in the market and with um, employee turnover really across the board. Um, as we've seen, and you reference some of the wholesaler research that we conduct, I mean, your team scores very highly in terms of bullishness on company culture and strategic direction of the firm. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what focus areas, what levers you and the leadership team have pulled to really to build and cultivate that company culture and, and ultimately promote employee retention? Sure. It's it's a topic that is near and dear to my heart. It's probably the one that I spend and have spent as much time as as of of, of anything, quite frankly, in the uh, roughly 13 years I've been in this position I'm in today. Because um, I've always believed that if you have a great culture, people will just want to stay at, at the end of the day. Um, you know, you look at firms across our industry in the U.S. Um, I think we all have great investment vehicles. I think we all pay relatively close to the same comp. I mean, some pay more than others, but by and large, relatively close. So what's the difference? What's the difference maker? What's the differentiator? To me, it's, it's the, the place that you work. Um, it's the culture that you, that you feel. Um, it's whether or not you have, feel like you truly have a vested interest in the betterment of that company because you have a vested interest in the people that are there. Uh, do you feel valued as a, not just a wholesaler, but an employee in that organization? Um, or do you feel like you're getting recognized for all the great work that you do? Do you feel like that you're bringing purpose every day to, to what you drive? Um, and uh, a few things that we do to keep ourselves in check on this. Uh, we, we uh, 13, 14 years ago, created a strategic intent for the organization that says that we're people-focused, family-friendly, and team-oriented. And every big decision that we make is based off of those three principles. And in fact, every manager meeting that I host, one of the topics that is always on our manager meeting is we do a culture check-in and we ask for honest feedback from our management team um, about how we're doing and where we may have pitfalls and maybe we've fallen back a little bit. And I just think if it's something that you talk about and you incorporate in your conversations and you strive to have the best culture possible, you can get there. And, and I think that that most of the people that have part, become part of our organization over the last 13 years would, would all say the same thing. And they feel like this is just a great place to be. And to me, in times when sales slow down, which means paychecks go down, culture is more important during those time periods than ever. And we're certainly in one of those right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Jeff, thank you so much for the time here. One final wrap up question for you before uh, before I hand it back to Goshka. This is you know, perhaps a bit cookie cutter, but as you think ahead towards 2023 and, and really your top focus areas, I'm sure there's a long, long list, but if you had to summarize really the top one or two areas you're most focused on for 2023, um, what do you think are going to be some of the highest highest impact areas for next year? You know, I could, I could list 20, but I won't. Um, I, I'll, list, I'll, I'll focus on two. Um, number one, um, in the market environment that we're in today, 
uh, I think it's critical that we remove the noise from our sales team. Anything that can be a distraction, whatever that could be, compensation, activity, um, down markets. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that are out there. Um, remove it all. Allow them to, to do what they do best, and that is get in front of financial advisors, whether that be in person or virtually, as many as they can to drive their success. So that's the that's that's a number one. It's a, it's a simple it's a simple thing to talk about, but it's a hard thing to actually do. Um, and then I guess the last thing is really focus on the strategies that we feel like could have the biggest impact on financial advisors and their clients in this in this tough market that we're in. Truly help that advisor with their practice. And that way, when we come out of this cycle of slow sales and net redemptions and the, and the things that the industry's in, then we'll be in a position to win. Perfect. Jeff, thank you so much. Um, you know, personally and professionally, always fantastic to, to get the time with you. Um, so really appreciate you taking the time for us today. Um, and Goshka, I will uh, I'll hand it over to you for some closing comments. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you for these great remarks. There are so many things. I love that the, uh, when you talked about distribution, it's about alignment and partnership between sales marketing product. I uh, couldn't agree more. Um, lots of um, the, uh, great thoughts about uh, kind of how to interact with advisors. And, you know, one wonders whether the future is both about personalizing that interaction with advisors and with RIA firms, but also maybe even down the road personalizing the clients, uh, uh, the, the products that we bring in terms of investment strategies to the clients. So I think there's even a deeper road of that kind of tailored approach. And 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 uh, I think that's fantastic. And I will, I have to repeat this thing, culture is key. I love that. I think that's such an important time and um, a, a, a thought at a time, particularly when, um, you know, both retail investors, advisors, and everybody um, in between is feeling quite uh, trepidatious about what's going on in the capital market. So, Jeff, thank you so much. Ashley, thank you very, very much. Um, that is a wrap for us this month. If you enjoyed this ep- episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to keep um, up to date with our monthly episodes. Um, as well, free, feel free to ping us um, with any ideas for topics or guests. With that, once again, great, uh, great thanks to Jeff and to Ashley. And that's a wrap for today. Thank you.